Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. Here's Tim Curtis. I don't know why I keep saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are in a very echoey, soon-to-be sound studio. Yeah. In our Um, office. So please excuse the echo, because we have not configured this with soundproofing. But you wanted to use it. We'll see how it sounds. Um, Tim, did you have any nicknames growing up? (laughs) I did. What what did you get? From a chemistry professor. No, a chemistry teacher. Yeah. Um, gave me the nickname Swimmy because I was a competitive swimmer and he was talking about these little swimmies and it stuck. <laughs> that wasn't a biology teacher who called you a little swimmer. Chemistry. Chemistry, interesting. Might have been physics. Yeah. What's the difference between the two? I got all the expected variants on Pronk. Mm-hmm. I got Plonker, which became Planker, which became Wanker, which kind of fitted. Mm-hmm. But our guest today also scored some variants on his name. Mudguts. <laughs> Megasaurus. Megasaurus. Uh, some fantastic ones. But um, his surname is not why we've got him on the show. We've got him on the show because he's doing some pretty amazing work uh, in mental health and in particular in veterans' mental health. That's right. So we've got Dr. Richard Magtengard on the show. He's a consultant psychiatrist with 20 years of clinical experience. But before that... 10 years in the Navy, and we're going to talk about that naval experience, the things that he learnt from being an officer of the watch, um, and why he transitioned into this thing called psychiatry. Yeah, and we're going to talk to him about, I guess, some of the pitfalls of mental health in the round, uh, going to look at some of the aspects of service-related uh, mental health illness that people are grappling with. And I'm really keen to ask him about this concept of victimhood mm. and, you know, what's the balance between identifying a need for help but also keeping uh, the, the patient, the individual, empowered um, rather than uh, sort of casting them as a victim. And surely you'd be a psychiatrist to prescribe medications. It's the whole purpose of psychiatry, I thought. Yeah, well, there's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, or one of them, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And so uh, one of the things I'm keen to explore, and Richard will talk to us about, is how successful he has been in not prescribing medication. Yeah, a fascinating discussion, I think, um, on that, the limits, the benefits, but also the drawbacks of medication as part of mental health treatment. Well, let's hear it from Richard. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. And in the studio with us today, Ben, we have Dr. Richard Magtengard. Did I get that right? Perfect. What's the, (laughs) Dr. Richard, what's the origin of that name before we go too much into your background, into the military and beyond? Um, It is one of those funny Scandinavian names. My father 
coming to Australia when he was 21 and landing in Fremantle with only his tools and not a lick of English brought a name that I was tormented with through much of my childhood. Um, <laughs> and you were, you were telling us before we went on air uh, some of the wonderful Australised, Australianised variations on your surname. What did you get as a kid and then into the military? Um, yeah, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. It's a good start. <laughs> well, we um, all had something. I grew, yeah, we did. I grew up in the wheat belt of South Australia, and in those days I was one of the few people with a funny name from overseas, and Magden Gord was bastardised to Maggot Lord. And then when I joined the Navy, um, went through the standard um, torment of being called Wheelbarrow with an M, <laughs> and then um, that was shortened to mud guts and then to mudders. And if I still bump into people these days, ex-Navy, they'll often remind me of that name, although I haven't heard it for nearly two and a half decades. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how badly can your surname be butchered? Um, well, it can go the other way because I had a patient years ago in the public system uh, who was chronically psychotic, very gentle soul, but tormented by... Uh, persecutory beliefs, but we developed a bit of a rapport, and I think it was more a consequence of some cognitive disturbance on his part, but he used to call me Dr. Megasaurus. <laughs> so it can land well too. That's great. I reckon that's a winner. That's, well, can we talk about growing up in the wheat belt of South Australia? What, what did that look like for you as a kid? Um, it was good, pretty simple. Uh, Sejuna, which is the eastern mm. side of the uh, fruit fly station on Highway 1, just when you jump off the Nullarbor heading east. Um, Mum and Dad uh, met in McKinley, Queensland, when my father had come to Australia, um, having a pretty rough start with his own dad in Denmark, uh, and then chose either Canada or Australia and, and came to Fremantle. They then circumnavigated the country with a caravan the old man made, given he was a builder, uh, and then they ended up in Sojourner. He took some jobs making agricultural sheds, and then um, essentially had my sister Ingrid, who's some years older than me, four or five, and then myself. And then most of the primary school in Sejuna, uh, lots of mates, uh, white kids and indigenous kids played footy, um, and it was good. Um, it's, it's interesting, having gone back the years later, my father maintained a, an interest in the Sejuna Thevenard area. The two towns have essentially joined. Mm. There, was a, there was a road between the two of them a couple of kilometres when I grew up, and he had a shipping contracting company, and really before... Uh, the change in most large merchant vessels with wheat and gypsum and so on getting um, sort of cleaned in Singapore. They used to come through ports like Thevenard, um, get scaled and cleaned and so on and then and then refilled and off they would go. Uh, going back there 10 years after I left when I was 10, a lot of drugs and alcohol had come into mm. both white and Indigenous communities and so it was a, a little more colourful town than I left as <laughs> I remember it. Mm. And what did school look like? What did it was an area have? school with mm-hmm. about 700 kids. Um, used to ride to school. And it's it's interesting now, but two boys, Tom and Sam, they used to ride nearly probably eight kilometres with my sister or some mates on the street to and from and thought nothing of it. And my young fellows go to Scotch, which is probably a similar distance. But it's difficult to get my wife to contend with the idea that the boys should be riding along the, along the railway mm. and even a little part of myself, there's these seeded doubts in a big city of whether they'll be safe, which mm. I know is wrong mm. and it doesn't help them. Um, but there are those pressures to, 
to protect and, and we get a very powerful message that our neighbours are potentially a threat. Mm. Um, you know, one doesn't like to think these things, but we all get affected by those uncertainties. Gee, yeah. If only we had a psychiatrist to analyse some of that. <laughs> <laughs> so secondary schooling completed in Sejuna? No, my, um, my father, God bless his cotton socks, was Tom Catting in Sejuna. And um, at about the ripe old age of 10, my parents split. Mum was probably the last lady in town to know what Dad had been up to. Mm, okay. So as you can imagine, everything kind of went pop. Uh, we then moved to Adelaide and I uh, did my secondary schooling in a northern suburb in Adelaide and then um, joined Navy when I was 18. Tried when I was 17, just on um, fresh out of year 12. They said, look, go back another year or two and we think you'll be ready. I then went and um, joined Navy and went to Creswell, south of Sydney, I think at the end of my 18th birthday and then mm. the next 10 years on ships. So what was the drive to join Navy from a, a little sort of wheat belt town to the, the Seven Seas? What, what sort of attracted you? I suspect, uh, in truth, and I'd happily say this in my fifth decade, um, having a, and with my psychiatric hat on, probably having a, a somewhat ambivalent relationship to my old man, um, my best friend David, his father was a warrant officer Navy, served on Melbourne and, and similar platforms um, and would spin many a worry and it just sounded like a really enchanting life. Um, and I didn't like the idea of just going from school into an office job. I wanted to do something different. I enjoyed sport, enjoyed being outside. Um, and I probably, under that influence and guidance, um, signed up. Did you get influenced by any of the recruiting commercials? We spoke to Lee Goddard, who was very uh, sort of motivated by being the pride of the fleet, despite yeah. being wet yeah. and homesick and scared. And yeah, no, very much. I grew up with yeah. the with the wet, homesick and frightened ads, and it certainly <laughs> at that age, it, it um, sunk its teeth into me. There's no doubt. Yeah, it's awesome. It's funny to think about that, but it's true. Well, we reflected on uh, the old... I, 1812 Overture. I think they were actually Army Reserve ads, but the, the whistled 1812 Overture, yes. I found that very stirring. And yeah. Good on your defence recruiting. Good propaganda. It works. Not, a, not <laughs> it everyone does. that joins the Army wants to drive a leopard tank. Remember that Is one? that the one with the Yabby? <laughs> yes. <laughs> not what? sure how the Yabby got into the tank. But well, no, they went through a crashing through a river crossing and they popped out with a Yabby on the other side. Full disclosure, more likely to be a Puckapunyal dam than a river. Yeah, correct. And dinner wasn't Yabby. It was some shitty ration pack <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, don't believe the ads. Yeah, no, I remember that ad. You're bringing back some lovely memories. Yeah, crackers. So we, we've, um, Mark Donaldson writes in his book, Crossroad, that Army was his second family, maybe the family he didn't have. And we've yep. interviewed Dan Kieran, VC, also on this program and a similar story for him. Was that a little bit of your motivation to be in Navy? To, to... Yeah, very much, very much. Um, and I still... Nowadays, as I'm formulating what might be going on for someone, thinking about um, the presenting complaint that someone will be coming with, what's got them a bit unstuck and, and how we can look at what's going well and what might need to be fixed. Um, thinking about whether an individual has come to the military to find their first family or their second family. And I think it's a bit of both, often, certainly for me, probably more second family. I was blessed in having a, an eternally supportive mother. Hmm. 
Life in Navy, where did you serve? Uh, Full-time, as I said, from uh, 18, a year at Creswell, then on DDG Perth, um, wonderful old ship. That was certainly my favourite posting under a great skipper called Jeff Smith. Um, you know, one of those guys who could, without raising his voice, just say to you on the bridge, Richard, that was very dull. You'd wilt <laughs> and you'd feel terrible for the next three days and, and be desperate to get back in his good books. It that sounds a, like a real Navy command word. Dull. Yeah. I don't know if too many army officers would use the word dull, would they? You must have heard it a few times <laughs> in your career, mate. Oh, geez. Well, I tell you what, this isn't your this isn't your first psychiatric appointment either. <laughs> no, but you know, if you stood the ship into danger or you just embarrassed um, the bridge, uh, you know, it was death to be kicked off the bridge by mm. Jeff Smith. You know, it was just so humiliating. But um, yeah, so on Perth. Uh, destroyer escorts, Tyrons and Derwent. Mm. A little bit of time on the old attack class patrol boats uh, and then on to success uh, and then uh, Australia. Looked at doing subs but couldn't handle the fact that just everything smelt and tastes like diesel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't proceed down that route but absolute admiration to those boys for what they do. Uh, and then um, uh, final posting last two years after Australia, looking after the reserves and the cadets on the island at uh, off Rocky, uh, and then off to Brisbane to do a postgraduate degree in medicine after I left military. So before we transition into um, medicine and beyond, what did you take away from Navy that you think is absolutely transferable to what you do now, Richard? Oh, everything. Um, it's left some really strong fingerprints on me. Um, importance of loyalty to the group and I don't say that lightly if you're going to commit to something do it Um, I get myself in trouble at times by focusing very much on the end state and if we've we've made a collective uh, agreement on working towards something um, it doesn't always go my way unfortunately (laughs) and in recent years but uh, I'd I think integrity and loyalty to uh, an agreement or a promise that you've made some other people around you that you're going to focus on that. Um, And also, I think it gives you a strong sense of purpose and focusing on um, doing things well and um, not going, well, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, it's time to down tools and head home. You Mm -hmm. know, you stick around until things are done. probably to one's detriment sometimes as well. You sort of joke that half a day work is six till six, you know, and, and sometimes it's about knowing how to turn off. Um, it's not an area that's good for me. I'm not really very good at being still and, and relaxing. I see people who are good at it, and there's, there's a quiet envy in that ability of someone who sits comfortably and just looks relaxed doing nothing. Isn't that odd? Yeah, I'd, I'd look at anyone in the field of psychology, psychiatry, and think they must be excellent at that. No. No. Wow. Well, I went to a funeral of a much admired and loved colleague, a a fellow called Professor John Rampono, who um, very much set up the Department of Psychological Medicine in Perth at the Women's Hospital. Great fellow. Very interested in helping new mothers adjust to the challenges of parenthood and fathers. Um, and the difficulties, given that not every pregnancy is a Johnson & Johnson commercial, nor mm-hmm. is every birth. Um, and I was listening to one of John's friends talking about, oh, actually his oldest boy, beg my pardon, um, giving 
uh, his memories of his father. He said they went on a family holiday, and this is John, a senior psychiatrist, and his son at the side of the pool came to John and said, you know, what are you doing, Dad? And he goes, I'm just seeing what it feels like to lie down and to relax. <laughs> you know, And um, he wasn't very good at it either. So it's nice to know that I was in good company. That's excellent. Mm. And a couple of things you just spoke about really resonated with me and in particular this idea of where we sit in between sort of individual rights and collective responsibility and I think there's been a lot of attention on our rights and you know me as an individual and like you say it's Mm. knockoff time and and that's my individual right to Mm. to finish at this point in time. I do think the military does uh, embed a a bit more awareness of collective responsibility what we owe to Mm. society. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt I mean without sounding too gung-ho. When I was 19, I was on a ship that, you know, at 0200 in the morning, you had 300 people sleeping beneath your feet, um, many of them below the waterline, and you had to get it right. It was mm. quite sobering, mm. very anxiety-provoking. But you knew that everyone had that shared obligation and, and you're all there trying to push the good um, and do the right thing. And one of the things that was really lovely, and I, I speak to guys about my own experience of stepping out of the military and, and just taking an old trip carrier from Perth up to Brisbane uh, to start medicine. And one thing I, I lament about not being in the civilian sector is as soon as you see someone in the military, you know exactly what rank they are, what category they are, what seniority are, and they've got a name tag. And you walk into a room and you can just shake everyone's hand and you know exactly where you sit <laughs> in the anthill. Mm. Um, it's not like that in Civvy Street and you know you go to a party and or to a work function and I'm not very good with names you know very quickly I forget that it's quite it's quite assisting if someone's got it on their chest mm. um, but but there is there is that definite sense of uh, collective effort um, and everything's focused on the end state the safety of the ship or the quality of training or the workups and making sure that when you're going on a deployment, everyone knows what to do, second nature, um, and you rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse. Um, and there's no what's in it for me in the military. I contend and I battle with that in the civilian sector. Um, still coming to terms with that. Mm. Before we leave the Navy... My standard question for ex-ship drivers, and this is born of the fact that I once put a houseboat aground just off uh, Bribie Island as a teenager. As you should. As have, you should. Have, <laughs> you, <laughs> have you ever crashed a boat? Uh, yes, but after the military. I remember going on a date with a girl who uh, was a lovely young lady called Kate and two of her friends, and I thought, well, you know, I had tickets on Harbour Watch Keeping, Bridge Watch Keeping, Open, open uh, Ocean Navigation, Sextant and all those sorts of things. Um, and we went fishing and we thought we'll just hire a little dinghy and I ran it aground with gusto <laughs> with my girlfriend and everyone in the boat laughing their hearts out. Better that than a destroyer, I reckon. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Just coming totally. to the point of anxiety with 300-plus people beneath your feet on a warship, um, how does that change from being you know a watchkeeper driving the ship to being a navigator navigating the ship is there different levels of anxiety um I, I was never a navigator per se i wasn't posted onto a warship as a navigator as officer of the watch on the bridge you your assistant navigator or you reporting to either the nav or the skipper or whoever 
um, has the con at that time um, or whatever the, the rules of the day are uh, based on the standing orders. Um, I think the navigator has an additional set of responsibilities at the divisional level, making sure that all those on the bridge are well-trained, taking their job seriously, um, and there's not so much focus on getting enough sleep, but making sure that everyone's there and doing the right thing. Um, being a navigator on a ship, incredibly challenging role. And if you ever wanted to get a drive as a, as a skipper, you have to go through that, obviously. Mm. These um, days, you'd just use Google Maps, wouldn't you? <laughs> you just about could. If you, I mean, I must admit, I, I'm a bit of a YouTube junkie and I still just watch pilotage, which is, you know, you see it on SBS, the sort of slow television of these vessels or trains or whatever. And I sometimes just look at pilotage um, through Singapore or other parts of the world and mm. so on and you know, fixing the ship's position every three minutes. Um, and I must admit, I still, one of my patients was asking me, you know, what do you still remember about the military? You know, what, what uncomfortable dreams do you have? And for me, it was always the most unpleasant when you're away on a deployment or a trip and you miss the shake to come on watch in half an hour. You didn't get a brew. And so you didn't have any time to adjust on the bridge wing to get your night mm. uh, vision. And you come up just waking up with sleep in your eyes and you come onto the bridge and everything's happening and the ocean's a Christmas tree. <laughs> and you just have no idea what contacts are doing what and you've got to play catch up in about 90 seconds. Yeah, that the is middle horrible. of the Malacca Straits mm. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you're coming into Singapore and there's a little fisherman who doesn't have any any lights on and they just light up some newspaper and wave it in front of the ship and you've got to go to starboard and go around them. And yeah, I, I still think very fondly of those boys out there and girls, of course. Of course, the girls doing it each night. Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, that's hard, cool. so, so out of the Navy whites and into the scrubs, you go and uh, study medicine. Did you study medicine always with a view to being a psychiatrist? Uh, no, I didn't. Initially... Um, looked at doing surgery but given I joined when I was 29 a correction not joined when I separated from defense when I was 29 and then joined the medical school in Brisbane um, I think if I was in my early 20s I would have done surgery but I never felt um, sufficiently safe at three in the morning assisting in a cesarean or um, in a surgery through the emergency department trauma team or similar I just never felt sufficiently alert to be doing that by myself. Mm. Um, and I think if I had youth on my side, I would have gone through that training. And then, you know, most surgeons obviously offered surgery during the day. But as part of your training, you've got to be available to do the, mm. the difficult overnight stuff. Um, <clears throat> and that's best done when you're young, no doubt. Um, but I went into psychiatry because in my time in the women's hospital, when I was looking at doing either obstetrics, gynaecology or gynaecological oncology. Um, I found myself more and more curious about the experience that people were having and the effect of it on their life and how they were integrating it into their understanding of themselves or how it was playing out within their relationships. And I'd find myself thinking more about that than at the cellular level, how a liver would hmm. work or how you would protect a wound from breaking down post-operatively. And so just naturally, 
um, I went into that. And I've always enjoyed the arts and music and literature, and that's the human condition, if nothing is. Mm. So that's sort of how I got there, I guess. And you're currently the director of the Military Trauma Recovery Program. That's right. It must be fascinating. I mean, the last 20 years of high-intensity combat operations, you know, to, to put this in a Petri dish and study it clinically, but there's also the treatment side. How do you judge those two things? How do you balance the sort of science from the art of treatment? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I'm still coming to terms with it. And I think the, the third part of it is within all of that, um, how do you get support for yourself and make sure that those uh, clinicians with, within the care team, a collaborative care team approach that we use, that they're doing okay and there's not mm. too many vicarious effects. Mm. Um, I don't pretend to say that I've still got there. I would say that... Um, treating men and women who serve the country, be it defence, veterans, police, fire, or ambulance, is a privilege, no doubt, huge privilege. Um, it's funny how, having been out for 23 years or so from the military, I still feel very comfortable, potentially even more comfortable, talking to people who are defence or veterans. I don't know what that is. Perhaps your personality framework ossifies, hardens when mm. you emerge into your early adult years and the die is cast. <laughs> Um, I quite like, very much like, actually being at Veterans Central and seeing memorabilia, people in uniforms and so on. So to me that feels like home. Maybe that's having that soft landing or that, that security is part of it. Um, but what, what I swing my feet out of bed for, I think, in the morning is knowing that a lot of the people coming for care are genuinely help-seeking. Um, they're much loved by their family. Many of them are parents, so you've got a big responsibility in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're almost always very appreciative for anything you offer. There's no grand sense of entitlement. that They value what's being offered to them. I don't know if that answers your questions on how to bring those things together, but that's what sustains me. In terms of treatment, I look always looking for the high water mark of who good operators are, who are veteran, clever, conversant clinicians, um, who's willing to help wrangle the current um, challenges around testing liability and DVA claims, um, which I think is very important to help people achieve restitution and move past um, the claims process. And for myself, I'm not a big prescriber of medication. I prescribe a supervised exercise program or yoga, uh, art therapy, blacksmithing, uh, companion animal mm. before a medication any day of the week. All of that said, if if someone's not in the pocket to be receptive yeah. to attend socially because they're, they're just cooking off too often and they're going to damage their reputation or they're, they're not going to attend, they'll avoid because they're fearful of actually... Uh, yelling or making other people uncomfortable because of their own arousal states, then we will look to using medication, but in a pretty tight, low-dose way and watch closely. I don't just like throwing medications into the dark like a dart and hoping we hit a target. We have to decide on what it's going to do. 
and I think about medication like a long-haul plane flight. What's it like to get on? What's it like to be at altitude? And what's it like to land? I don't think enough doctors talk to patients about discontinuation effects. Either people forget to refill their script or just decide to stop it. Some of it's a bit uncomfortable to stop outright. Hmm. So if you're going to prescribe medication, you have to think about the whole passage. Hmm. The non-medicated treatments, how successful do you find them in then not having to prescribe medications? Yeah, so you very... talked about equine companion dogs, yep. uh, blacksmithing, yep. the forgery component. Yeah, I think that's the, the heart of it. The medications are Did not you say going... forgery, like counterfeiting money? It's called forgery, isn't it? Uh, blacksmithing at the forge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, we we do not recommend counterfeiting as a... <laughs> yeah, yeah extract that one from a form of treatment. Yeah. I think you have to leave that in the podcast. <laughs> Social identity theory. <laughs> yeah. No, um, the medication is not curative. It, it's, it's not going to remove uh, any depressive component or anxiety component, vaccinate it from ever coming back again. So you need to create a framework where an individual can get solid education about what's going on for them. And I'm always saying, you know, I think we're dealing with these problems because you have a mammalian brain, not because you are you know, Digger Jones. It's not to be personalised. You, you are experiencing the difficulties of living within a mammalian brain. I think when you educate people and take it away from being a personalised experience but going, well, this is what it's like to be a male with this brain having experienced these difficulties. It's a fairly normal outcome to uh, have these challenges. And that can reduce a lot of shame and stigma and that in itself is therapeutic. Um, and then bringing access to good people who are a bit further down the goat track than that individual is and and they can get a sense of hope that they're going to move past this and then one must always include family and the kids in that it's very helpful to um to bring the spouse into the room even if only for the one one hour session to introduce yourself and then to make that invitation to come back i think it's really containing for the spouse, male or female, uh, to know where their partner's going and, and to have laid eyes on you and, and understand the way that you want to approach the care. Um, and it's important that we don't overly medicalise what's happening and we don't lay you know, a heap of diagnosis on someone's lap. I'm not someone for saying well you have post-traumatic stress disorder and you have depressive disorder and you have this and you have this and you have this and you have this and I say to people when I first meet them that my practice is an assessment management based practice where our initial role is to get a shared understanding of what's on your plate what's going well what could be going better and how far away from fix that feels and what do you want to work on first um, it's not for me to decide what the treatment goals are mm. it's that individual coming in saying well this is what's really stuck in my side and I want some help with it. Could I just zoom back up, um, you know, 20 years of that high intensity combat operations for many militaries mm -hmm. around the world. We, we hate the idea of reducing this down to a box set of kindergarten, kindergarten solvable problems, but in order to reduce it down to a box set of <laughs> kindergarten problems, what has been the major issue in, in 20 years? What's going on in people's heads? Did we prepare them well? Could we have done that better? Um, you know, how do we sort of 
prepare people better in the future and or solve this problem? That's an easy not. question. Okay. Yeah, Jeez. it's probably not the best and, phrase. And whether question. we can solve or just manage the problem. Yeah. 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 I, my, I, I have this, I mean, we've talked about this uh, before, Ben, but I do have this theory that we prepare people incredibly well physically. We give them all these incredible skills, equipment, uh, even facilities, but we might not be doing enough inside their head. I mean, turning their brain back inside on itself rather than, yep, the grit, determination, focus, courage, um, all of those external views. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think we decommission our aircraft and platforms and and refit and do mid-life cycle refurbishments much better than we do within the military. And, and I think the police, AMBO and FIRE, God bless them, do it worse in that they're always on deployment and they're on deployment in the local neighbourhood where their kids go to school or they might go and watch mm. a movie. And so if there's... Uh, events that are difficult while they're in uniform and then their child wants to go down to that playground mm. the next weekend where something terrible may have happened. It's very challenging for that police officer to be present and available for the needs of their child as a consequence of that. But in a, in a big way of conceptualising that question, I think the, the tempo of operations, the requirement to turn around year after year and they're away from loved ones for a long term and then this persistent state of arousal where the adrenals and your sympathetic nervous system is just activated for literally seasons across a year and then to come back to Perth and just act normal or to expect to act normal is a big ask and then without moving into a political discussion I was talking yesterday um, to a lovely fellow called Professor Zach Steele who's in Sydney who works with the police and trying to gently nudge them in the eastern states um, to be far more supportive uh, of their police officers in the pre-compensable space whenever there's a question of their conduct raised by the public or internally within their own organisation. He said to me, Rich, from the research that is being done in Sydney a couple of years ago, but it's been followed up on more recently. If someone um, is involved in a critical incident where there's a loss of life and that police officer was either directly involved causing it or witnessing on scene, as soon as an internal organisational audit or show cause process kicks off, the chance of that person having the onset of enduring very distressing anxiety states moving through to gross disorder in their social and occupation function relationships and so on. It's just trebled. Mm. So what the Australian military is going through at the moment will have some significant costs because it's played out so publicly. It's getting kicked around wonderfully as a football. Um, and I think in 10 years... Everyone will look back and say, well, that could have been done so much better. That's my thought. Yeah, I think it's a thought that's pretty much shared with a lot of people mm. in the community that, mm. you know, there are enough issues in terms of what people have been exposed to, what they mm. may or may not have done in terms of the impacts on themselves and their mental health. And yeah. 
uh, to play it out in this manner mm. is is probably not healthy for the yep. individuals. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I was just going to come back. Um, you spoke before about the mammalian brain and and sort of some of that sense making that mm. that can really help people when they understand the the neurological processes. It's very reminiscent of a, a passage in Mark Wales's book where he talks about his own struggles with PTSD and having a neuroscientist actually explain to him, you know, here's your amygdala and and this is kind of your reptilian brain. Mm. And I I think the wonderful turn of phrase he uses is basically you're more lizard than human at the moment because your amygdala has been been riding roughshod. And some of our research into resilience, some fascinating stuff about the neuroplastic effects of meditation and mindfulness, being able to get control of that. Have you seen the benefits of that in your work? Very much. Um, I work with a colleague within the hospital setting called Pauline Cole and she does dialectical behavioural therapy so combination between changing the way that one is thinking and changing the way that one is behaving so that your focus is to create a situation where more of the time you are responding to a situation non-judgmentally and initially doing nothing and the idea of a wise mind is that you have a rational mind and on the other side of that you have an emotional mind and you should not be existing too much in each space but she talks about something called the hand model of the brain which is difficult potentially within the context of a podcast (laughs) but within our mammalian brain, if we put the, the the base of the palm where the thumb muscles are down by the wrist as that reptilian part of the brain and we made our thumb the thalamus and the amygdala, so the emotional mm. regulatory sensory centres, and then we made our fingers the newer human part of the brain, the neocortex. Ideally, everything would be wrapped in a fist with your thumb underneath your closed fingers. And in post-traumatic stress disorder or a trauma response to something happening recently, days or weeks ago, what can happen is that you can have a dysregulation to the connections whereby, for want of a better way of explaining it, the hand opens and those fingers being the part of the brain that helps us to rationalise, abstract, understand and negotiate an outcome within our relationships, call on support, recognise tomorrow will be a better day if we just make it through this one. That goes offline, it's disconnected, and we operate in that fight, flight, freeze mode. Um, And exactly what you're saying, Ben, is that the idea of mindfulness, meditation, coming back to one's breath, is to try to maintain an integrated brain where your frontal lobe is operating Mm. with your lizard brain yeah comprehensively um and i think that is a really important part of all of those treatment modalities that we spoke about earlier the meditation the prescription of a supervised exercise program which is not high intensity interval training of itself there's a lot of relaxation stretching some dynamic movements um, art therapy, blacksmithing, remembering that you know, blacksmithing is very good if you have 
uh, chronic pain because you know there's something very nice about standing next to a, a forge and it warms the trunk um, the, the body and so a lot of the guys feel far better afterwards standing next to that heat source and they get some exercise without knowing it and in the same way that I think we have to remember that in the same way that we can co-regulate each other emotionally, given we're herd creatures, we also co-dysregulate each other. So it's important that if you're having a hard time that you spend time with other people to act to regulate your inner state, to, mm. to give you a sense of, you know, it's okay. You can, you can come down to where I'm at at the moment. Um, and so it's really important. And I, I worry for the people who are not only doing poorly, but who isolate themselves because simply being around other people who are settled will settle ourselves. And the point that the other people need to be settled or maybe it needs to be in a somewhat supervised situation. My brother in our research alerted us to this idea of maladaptive co-rumination where if you're surrounding yourself by people that are bringing you down who aren't settled themselves, maybe they've shared the same experiences. But if you're constantly you know, going over negative patterns between you, that can be even worse, can't it? Oh, there's no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, you know, at its worst, you see people behaving very poorly. Um, and, um, yeah, that's a really good point. It's a really good point that you make, that um, there is a requirement to stand back and try to objectively recognise the failings of the human condition and go, all right, this has happened, but we don't have to be completely defined by it. Mm. We, we can recognise that it's wrong. Um, but also look at the good things around us that are going right and, and try to bring both of those into relief and, and look at it as a whole. And that idea of the wise mind of going, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm feeling really upset at the moment, but it need not contaminate every other part of my life. Now, I know that's easier mm. said than done. You see it time and time again, but that's a longer-term objective mm. is to give people that capacity what we call an observer self, to stand back from what they're going through and go, okay, well, this is normal. Anyone in this experience would be having this. Um, and what are the things that are going to help that are going to be adaptive yeah. in that situation? You, you tell me you can't live Cause the darkness is creeping in, there's no light not anymore. Can we talk really quickly about art therapy? You've mentioned it a couple of times. Yep. It's something that's pretty close to my heart. Um, I've done a little bit of work with Lisa Howie, who set up the Military Art Program Australia, and uh, found you know a lot of benefits for the the veterans participating in that. How does that work? Um, Lisa introduced herself to me some years ago, um, uh, and that's where talking to her regarding art therapy led me to bring it into, or at least as an option, within to treatment. I think there's a lot to be said for non-verbal forms of therapy, where it's not just sitting in a white room with someone with a clipboard talking about your feelings. Um, the creative side of the brain, so you're using both sides of your brain to integrate experiences, um, but also to recognise that by bringing, for want of a better word, beauty and creativity out of yourself into whatever medium it is, whether it's through a brush or uh, sculpting 
or woodworking or something that you're creating on a, on a grander scale. It could be a garden, mm. you know, um, and then spending time in that space. It, it really is a contemplative, mindful endeavour uh, that forces you to focus on something that you're doing that's worthwhile. And again, just that interaction with what you're doing that in itself can be very regulating emotionally. Mm. But it also gives structure and routine to your week as well. Um, and it, it removes that those long hours of having nothing to do or when people are asking you, what are you going to be doing or what have you done recently? Um, being able to talk about that creative side of oneself uh, helps with a sense of identity. You often see people avoiding social interactions because they're embarrassed by the idea telling someone, mm. I've been unemployed for two years, or I don't go out, it's really shaming. Um, but it makes sense that that would be the case. So things like art therapy, um, really important. And I have to say, highly respect Lisa for going down onto the island time and time again. I think her husband, Warren Officer, who yeah. makes these little packs for the sailors and hands them out to ship's company. Um, and I, I see a guy who's a uh, Navy cook uh, and he said that when he was at sea having a hard time he pulled this out and on the upper decks framed the sunset with the staunchions and the rails and he was scratching away an image of the sunset awesome. thanks to Lisa and, and I think one of the other things that um, the visual arts give you is an artifact as well you've got something to show for it and yes, yes, for yes. me you know in my own little thing it's kind of satisfying you've mm. done something there's yeah. proof and yeah, yeah absolutely yeah yeah um, as a really quick aside, uh, the Australian War Memorial runs an annual art prize called the Napier Waller Art Prize, named after a famous Australian veteran artist, but it's open to all Australian veteran artists. And um, for those who are doing art therapy or, or even if you're just interested in art, some cracking stuff coming out of that in all forms, in all mediums. I'll have to um, get some information about that and pass that on to um, people as that that end point to, to work towards something. One thing we didn't really touch on um, is the importance of sport. I mean, obviously the military with sporties and so on is, is really important. And I think the idea of the Invictus Games, which has clearly been interrupted by COVID, you know, I, I do hope that that continues across the years. It's been instrumental for some of the people I've seen, particularly those who are differently abled, uh, who might have chronic pain, but being able to contribute be it in a precision, fine motor task, pistols and similar, um, they've found it really, really helpful. So please, share with me your hurt. Maybe one day I will be able to, to take away some of that. So please, I ask. Hold on So please don't cry I'll be there for you and I won't let Animal therapy, you so, you know, we talked about art or, you know, standing at the forge, doing forgery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start prescribing forgery, if you don't mind. I'm actually building a surfboard, which I guess is is one form of art, with a fantastic guy by the name of Greg Wallace that we've had on the podcast before. Greg runs a charity called Connected By, and there's no rank, there's no class in that in that warehouse. You can't even talk about 
who you are and what you do and where you live. He really removes all that, very special. But animal therapy, equine, companion dog, some could look at that and think, that sounds a bit gimmicky. Why isn't it gimmicky? Um, well, we both share the same brain for all intents and purposes. <laughs> I think when you're teaching someone, I'm not an equine therapist, so you know, if I fall over on this, I apologise in advance. But talking to Mel Keane, who runs a group in Kalamunda called Horse Horizons, and I think she's a terrific lady and deserves an OAM for the, the, uh, the burden of people's trauma that she takes on and, and carries with them. Lovely lady. But if she, taught, she, if she were here at, at uh, paraphrasing her, she would say that because horses are prey animals, the, the lessons of a prey animal that lives in herds, that relies on others, that remains proximal to others, that doesn't isolate to do well and thrive, um, can be also used um, by people living in a community. But at the level of the neurology, she speaks of a prey animal assessing threat, making a determination, coming back to the moment and being present and doing that all day long. So it's threat, appraisal, determined safe, back to being present, grazing, whatever, and then assessing again. Um, and so she uses the therapy horses to normalise, to educate, but also because they are a prey animal. If the veteran who is learning um, animal husbandry, just simply looking after a horse and, and helping muck out stables and on the long lead um, and all of those things that she gets the horse, the, the, the folks to do with the horses. Um, it's a really good mirror because if the horse is aroused, if it's not settling, she'll ask the veteran just to scan where they are at, what their posture's like, what's their breathing like, mm. how mm. are they holding themselves? Because the horse is picking up on that like no man's business. Mm. Because if one horse is standing next to another one that's aroused and has seen something, you guarantee both their ears are going to prick up. So it's a really good way for these guys to, over a couple of hours, moderating their inner state, settling themselves just by seeing how the animal beside them is engaging. I didn't understand any of this stuff and I'm still fairly early in my learning, but the guys who go there find it really helpful. And again, to complement the face-to-face the -face within the white office of seeing a clinical psychologist with a clipboard on their lap, being outside under the trees with a horse and the animals and, and, and on the farm that Mel has, they find it really therapeutic. I think with the, the therapy dogs, um, the first thing, the first caveat is that Rightly so, there needs to be a proper assessment to make sure that any dog that is being asked to live with someone and act as a companion animal or as an assistance dog, that individual has to be at a space where they're sufficiently well regulated to look after the animal, meet their needs and not to stress the animal. So a good service will spend some months, if not seasons, helping the veteran to get to the point of being acquainted to and then training the dog and then benefiting from that assistance. But practically, therapy dogs will, you probably know all of this, will wake someone who's having a nightmare. If someone's mm. aroused, a dog, if it's decided that a dog of a larger size should be there, will lie on the person. If they're in public, stand between that individual and others as a, as a protector. 
um, but also it's just that un- unconditional positive regard and love. You know, we all know what it's like. Mm. You can walk out of the kitchen and two minutes later, the dog goes, you're back. You know? <laughs> I, and I, it's just... <laughs> I would I've love to get as excited about anything as my as dog, dog gets yeah. for okay. me returning home every day. It's brilliant. Well, a friend of mine, Andrew Miller, uh, tells a good joke. He says, you know, if you want to know who loves you more... Lock your wife and your dog in the shed. Come back in four hours and see who's happy to see you. Do not do that. (laughs) So staying with the theme of treatment, but maybe non-conventional treatment, is there a place for the psychedelics, the cannabinoids, psilocybin, even things that might be a bit more manufactured, MDMA and similar? Uh, Short answer is yes, there is. There's no doubt. Uh, regarding cannabinoids, if someone comes to me and says, Doc, I want medical marijuana, I hear pizza, by which I mean, there are, there are, no, I'm not talking about the munchies and eating them, but there are a thousand of variations of pizza, much like there are within the cannabinoid molecules, plus or minus, whether you are introducing THC. So again, I use one service who undertakes a series of pre- and post-test measures um, to look at what's required and then prescribe accordingly. I think there's a significant misnomer regarding the THC component within um, medicinal cannabinoids. It's an interesting one because a couple of police officers who have um, very kindly come for care have prescribed medicinal cannabinoids for, but trying to get Waypole to allow them to have low dose THC to reduce mm. their arousal rates. It's just not going to happen. But if you and I, um, of course, we wouldn't inhale, but if you and I were to <laughs> smoke a joint here, there would be between 250 and 450, 500 milligrams of THC within that joint, depending on how, how well it's been curated and hydroponically grown for effect. But medicinal cannabinoids, if THC was going to be introduced, compared to the 250 to 450 milligrams, it's about 2 to 4 milligrams of THC. So it's mm. micro-dosing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some interesting trials coming out showing that when it comes to over six months reducing the anxiety states that people are reporting, that lived experience, and obviously not surprisingly the quality of sleep initiation and insomnia and their experience of physical pain, Medicinal cannabinoids are showing favourable responses in all three of these areas. One would hope that in the months and years to come, um, there will be further relaxations on prescribing. To DVA's great credit, we're indicated they are subsidising treatment and people are able to move away from medications which have much greater metabolic risk affected uh, associated with them, such as obesity, cholesterol impairment, and so on. Um, in terms of psilocybin... MDMA, there's been some amazing uh, research coming out last month in Nature Science showed that uh, you get some stunning effects in PTSD with using um, uh, psilocybin, um, similar for MDMA. And I think in times to come, there will be a relaxation from the current S9 Mm. uh, categorization down to S8. Uh, and I, I think that they will still need and should still be prescribed with a specialist. The difficulty is um, that we're still working out 
what is the ideal treatment protocol across how many days at what doses and and how do you protect against any potential negative effects from any of those agents but all of medicine's like that mm. i just wish we would be going a little more quickly towards it rather than being overly unnecessarily fearful because the data is now in mm. stuff it, works is addiction or overdose possible on those traditional medicines um on traditional medicines like opioids and so on? We? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, and I'm, I'm talking more specifically on, on the psilocybins and cannabis. Uh, the doses that are being used at the moment are tiny, so no is the answer. But like any medication, if um, you know, if it was diverted, although it's unlikely that you know you can you can buy it off the street now if you want, um, then of, of course there could be problems. But this is all rightly so going to be medically supervised, followed up. Mm. with engagement from a pharmacist. Um, you know, it's not going to be handed out in a paper plate for someone to self-manage. Mm. This is one of the frustrations that if we're pushing people underground for this, then, you know, as I understand, one of the big things about the psychedelics is this concept of set and setting. So, yes. you know, the right doses, but also the right environment yeah. and having that sort of supervision through yeah. the experience. And if we're pushing this out of the legitimate medical fraternity underground, then we risk compromising that and having yeah. negative experiences. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, it's it's a universal, and, and one works to understand the, the driving opposition to this, um, but, but you see it within needle exchange programs, you see within decriminalisation of substances. You know, to my mind, I, I worked with an excellent GP in, in Brisbane who used to go into the prisons, and he, he said to me, this is my language warning, gentlemen, <laughs> he said to me, Rich, there's two things about alcohol and other drugs. He said, people who love themselves don't put shit into their veins. And he said, people use drugs and alcohol to reduce the stress in their life from an unmet need or unmet needs. And it makes sense. As soon as you conceptualise it from that construct, you, you recognise that if you can work towards seeing the overuse of alcohol or other drugs of addiction or gambling or whatever it is, work towards that getting to its use-by date and bring in more helpful ways of doing things and move away from the less helpful ways of doing things. You're not stigmatising the person, you're not shaming them. Mm. You're normalising it, going, well, of course, mate, it's working, so you're using it, but let's look at some other more helpful stuff that can also help and work. And that's where the medicinal cannabinoids... And I see a lot of opposition within my colleagues going, oh, there's no, there's no uh, evidence that medicinal cannabinoids um, treat or cure PTSD. Correct. They don't. PTSD has four symptom clusters. Nothing's going to capture it all. Mm. But if you're focusing on targeted symptoms of dampening and arousal states, so someone doesn't drink so much at night to get to sleep, or if you can initiate sleep, or if you can focus on the pain layer, so you can move people away from heavy doses of other medications. Remembering many of the accepted medications are pretty dirty in the side effect profile. Mm. Um, and so people don't use them, or if they do, it's, you know, with umbrage. Um, you know, and I hope in five years that this conversation isn't being had, but we've mm. moved past it. Fingers can crossed. I, can I stay with disruptive health? And, um, you know, you're a big champion of disruptive health technologies. And the other day I saw you demonstrate, patient-free, mind you, <laughs> uh, something called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. That's right. Can you explain what that looks like? Yep. around the chair and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. 
So transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, um, has been around for about 22 years now, um, very much championed in the eastern states by a fellow called Professor Paul Fitzgerald. And we're now at a point where introducing a repeated changing magnetic field through a magnetic coil close to the scalp on the left frontal part of the brain that can have some local and some deeper network effects can very much help relieve the burden of suffering uh, within depression but also the depressive component of PTSD um, and for me my service uh, has introduced a TMS chair into Veteran Central uh, as part of the service offerings because when you're trying to approach a depressive component of PTSD, so someone becoming um, persistently, pervasively depressed and without significant hope, motivation, quite apathetic in their life because of these grinding, unremitting anxiety states, arousal states, re-experiencing phenomena. Um, when you're wanting to approach that depressive component, it's a bit like tiger territory because you don't want to increase the arousal state. Sometimes using antidepressant medication can worsen the arousal, the anxiety state, the side effect burden. Mm. And people have a very limited tolerance to that, as anyone would, if you're on edge. Um, and TMS can very much help reduce the depressive component, which in and of itself just settles the whole system down by um, treating the depressive layer, the psychological pain that an individual is going through or the physical pain comorbid to that becomes much more tolerable. And interestingly with TMS, we're doing some study um, as part of a scholarly project with my registrar at the moment. who's a lovely Irish trained doctor. He wants to look at stigma in TMS in veterans. Uh, and when you show the, the veteran on the screen an MRI image of their own brain and how the machine is stereotactically locating the same point each treatment over the four or five week cycle on their brain. For military folk that makes sense. It's a targeted effort towards one point on the brain rather than just ingesting a medication and then globally making changes and hoping we get a therapeutic outcome for that. It's not to say that medications don't have a place, of course they do, but we should always be looking, you know, where's the next box that can be put on the table that does clever things? I mean, that's what the military does all day long trying to improve that arsenal, the, the weaponry against something that's undesired. Um, and many veterans have actually asked to try TMS because a number of their friends have said that they've had it and it's helped. At the moment, the focus is very much on depression and the depressive component on PTSD. The Ear Science Institute at Veterans Central, so Lions Hearing, I'm hoping later in the year we can do some work on tinnitus because there's good evidence to reduce tinnitus. Um, also for fibromyalgia, OCD, and there's some good work being done on recovery after stroke as well. So, you know, we all know that as soon as someone comes in and says, I've got this treatment that can do 20 different things, you're talking to a snake oil salesman. <laughs> but slowly, 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 the evidence is coming in that we're, we're indicated. And when you've got the, the indications correct, TMS uh, will hopefully have some good results. Can we talk emotional regulation? Um, so I don't have to come to see you. Mm. What are the sorts of things I can do in the comfort of my own home or car or workplace to just deal with stress and anxiety and the pressure? That's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. I don't think 
I've ever seen more advertisements for psychologists within practice uh, than I've seen in the last year as a consequence probably of COVID and the downstream results of that. I think as a society, people are under duress and that may slip into disorder if the right changes aren't made within social functioning and occupational roles. Um, ideally, that old adage of um, belonging to a group, spending time with other people and connecting, um, and just that simple enjoyment of being around others and challenging yourself, um, making sure that steps that are being taken, as unexciting as they might be, of good diet, good sleep, um, adequate exercise, and getting off social media on the weekend, says he, <laughs> um, <laughs> and spending time with other people, getting outside, you know, what is it they say, you know, feeling blue, touch green, getting <laughs> under one tree and looking at another one, getting outside into the natural world. Um, we're blessed in Perth, obviously. There's nothing like walking along the beach um, to really help get some perspective on how big the world is and that thing that's tormenting you. It quite, kind of might not be the centre of the solar system. Um, but if that le gets legs and runs on you, there's nothing wrong with letting your friends know that you're struggling. Uh, my mates and I have a bit of a rule where if one of us is having a hard time, we'll just decide one of us in the morning will send that person a question mark by text and the deal is that you'll send a thumbs up or a thumbs down. If it's a thumbs down, you'll get a call and you talk it out. So leaning on your mates and normalising the fact that you're not going to get through this life without having some difficult periods um, and it doesn't demonstrate mental illness. It just might mean that you're close to breaking strain and you need to share that load. You talked about breathing before and we breathe every day. Mm. What's the difference? I mean, what, what are you advocating in terms of breath? Um, more about recognising how you're holding yourself, your posture, um, and whether you are breathing diaphragmatically, so deeper, more conscious, slower breaths, um, rather than shorter, sharper uh, breaths. And uh, pursuits like yoga, relaxation, Pilates, working with a psychologist, or even apps where it'll help you to visually or uh, verbally slow your breathing down and, and count to uh, or count the, the rate of breaths that you're taking each minute can just help to ground you. There's not that many things that we can do to consciously change our physical state, but we can regulate our breathing. Mm. I can't overtly change my blood pressure or change my body temperature, change my insulin levels, but we do have very conscious control over how relaxed we are or how we um, stretch things out, but also how we breathe. And I think it's really important that if you're feeling stressed to do that and, and to practice it for those times when, and again, that's the trick. It's knowing that when you are mm -hmm. stressed and going, all right, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes out here and come back in. And, and so often it's all the good stuff's there, but it's just knowing when to draw on it. You know, it's not like you can spend your whole day breathing mindfully. Not much would get done, <laughs> right? Mm. But perhaps threading that into the beginning of your day, 
through exercise or, or having a, a routine when you get to the top of a hill, be it Bold Park in Perth or other, spend some time breathing and then they can just ground you for the day. Awesome. We spoke again before we went on air about this idea of victimhood and um, you spoke about diagnoses and all of these things, which in many ways to me, and I think particularly for veterans, can sort of make people feel like they're, they're a victim and can rob them of a feeling of power and control. And a lot of what you've spoken about, having techniques, normalisation, destigmatization, a big part of that seems to be giving some control back and sort of allowing that, that internal locus of control which we spoke about. How important is that in terms of the approach to these kind of issues? Oh, I think it's pivotal. It sits at the heart of it. Um, we were talking before regarding the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, post-trauma stress is normal. It's mm. pretty hard to get away from. <laughs> and I tell people that my role is, is to look for the disorder and then to work out whether we're agreeing on should things be happening a bit differently and can we move from a situation of post-trauma stress and managing that within one's day-to-day life as we've been talking about or looking at the disorder and do they need to take a step back from their current role functioning, be it at work um, or within other activities they're engaged in, the individual's engaged in or both. Um, PTSD is the only diagnosis within psychiatry where you can externalise the cause and the responsibility for that and say, you know, if not but for Mm. that experience, everything will be fine. Um, and the this is not meant in any pejorative sense to any current or future patients, but unless we assume responsibility for everything that's happening in our life, it doesn't mean we're accepting or condoning it, but assuming responsibility for it, externalising uh, that and remaining in the sick role or getting some secondary gain from it, um, will oppose any favourable shifts in the trajectory of recovery. And the person can say, stuck for years. Mm. Um, So the idea of normalising the lived experience, it's not sanctioning that someone's staying there. The expectation is that you come in the help-seeking position, and that means we're moving from one point to another, looking at what's going well, what's not going well, and how far away from fixed that is. But we're heading always towards fixed. Um, And... One of the best descriptions that I was given years ago on trauma was that if you looked at your life as a book, each chapter as a year and each page within each chapter as a day, there might be a series of traumatic experiences or pepper pages across series of chapters and individuals we can stop reading that chapter, stop going back to that chapter or drawing on the experiences in that space and so as we flick through the memories of our lives it can be very stilted and become um, a real problem and trauma work is about recognizing that there are gifts within all of that adversity if you learn from them and it can in fact end up being uh, an enriching experience and the idea of post-traumatic growth Mm that going through these experiences, you can recognise how truly strong you are. Um, 
and how loved you are and that you're not defined by things that might have previously been seen as a failure. But that's where the good stuff is. That's where people find you human and find you learn a lot of empathy in that space and become more judge, non-judgmental towards mm. other people because you're not so quick to <laughs> jump up and down at the bloke cutting in front of you in the car park. You just let him have his bad day and don't give him a hard time about it because mm. you don't know where he's at. Mm. And you can get that empathy as a consequence of having been down that goat track yourself. Maybe a nice place to leave the conversation, and you've been very generous with your time, was um, is with the theme of caring for the carers. Mm. Um, my mother introduced me to this years and years and years ago. She um, was a nurse in, in her first career. And you talked about identifying the problem, identifying the solution, but also those people that might treat that, whether it's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a physician, a therapist or others. How can we care for the carers who are immersed in certainly the psychological trauma of people from six to six, and that's just starting their day? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it comes down to the system of care in which you engage. If you just see the patient as this entity that doesn't exist within a broader system of relationships, of roles, you won't ever get to that desired point. So thinking about the individual within all the questionnaires that I furnish, I'm not saying about this right, I'm not an expert in this space by any stretch, don't get me wrong, but whenever I ask questionnaires of an individual, the spouse also gets a questionnaire. It used to be I'd give one green, one yellow, highlighter and do it in the room, which is always a bit provocative. Hmm. Um, but now they get centred electronically, one for the spouse and one for the um, for the individual, the patient I'm treating. And I, and I joke saying that, uh, you know, you've brought the truth serum with you today <laughs> when the wife walks in the room. And it's, it's deliberately set in jest to break the ice. And, you know, the, the standard question is when I'm talking to whomever the carer is, and often just by default it's a wife, but it can always be a parent or even a child of a parent suffering an illness, or all of those and more. And the most typical question is, so, you know, what caused you to fall in love with this man? And then the wife will reminisce, and I go, okay, what's he like these days? You know, and invariably it's some form of a definition wrapped around, you know, bear with a headache, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then, well, how are you going with that? And that's when I just say to the male patient, you know, this is your time to sit there and be pretty. Let's just listen to what it's like for her. And often, particularly these days, um, wives who are mothers who are also working part-time and trying to juggle all those things, spin all those plates, are under immense pressure. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, they sometimes bite back when the guy's having a hard time. And so it's not just sending them off to couples therapy at all, but it's about going, well, you know, how do you... How do you parent your kids together? Are you on a unity ticket with parenting your children? Uh, those sort of things that can be quickly and rapidly modified by do you have a shared way of demonstrating warmth but also authority with the kids and do you support each other in that space? Um, do you have a house cleaner? And if they say yes, I often say, well, you're one of those people who will clean the house before the cleaner comes. <laughs> and often they'll say yes, particularly military wives. Um, and so those things that have nothing to do with treatable mental illness, nothing to do with medications, but just those practical things that can be modified so the system in which the individual lives can be can engender a sense of, oh, there are some shifts that we can make here. And 
so much of that is really low-hanging fruit, um, but it's lovely to discuss it in the room with the spouse because typically you get a much better outcome when that happens. Um, and also getting supports for the kids as well. There's a great organisation that's finally come to WA called Kookaburra Kids, uh, and they're working with uh, the broader Australian community, but also now ADF and veterans. Uh, there's a lovely book written by the wife of an Australian um, ex-digger called the um, called Operation Greenheart, which helps a child understand what dad's gone through as a consequence of his service life and how that plays out at home. Mm. Um, so there are lots of resources available and becoming more uh, or better known but there's also those practical advocacy requirements. I mean, there's no superannuation for being a carer. Mm. You know, you get an entitlement from the government or from DBA, but you don't get super parked in the back. Mm. So there are gross inequities still there. I don't think for a second we've got it right. But what you can do as a clinician is bring that person into the room and have them there as a supporter. But also I ask them, you know, have you got a good GP? Do you have a good group of girlfriends or male friends to talk about what's going on for you? And if it's not, then without assuming responsibility as a doctor of that patient, just scratch out some notes to give some ideas on how they can start scaffolding that stuff for themselves. And then, because invariably you find more similarities and differences. They both want to be closer. They both want to communicate better. They both feel really uncomfortable when there's tension in the room. You can cut with a knife and they want their kids not to be suffering. Mm. I mean, you know, they're allies if ever you've seen. Mm. And it's how that plays out across the lounge room. Mm. That's been my experience. That's unbelievable. Thank you very much, Dr. Richard, for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Dr. My pleasure, Megas- Jansel. It was good fun. Dr. Megasaurus, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Cheers. You tell me you can't live Cos the darkness is creeping in There's no light Not anymore And I know you're keeping it the pain that's deep within it's unbearable i can see that so please share with me your hurt maybe one day i will be able to Take away some of that So please, I ask Just hold on So please don't cry I'll be there for you Cause I will help take away your pain And please don't let go of this life you're living I want you to understand You're worth much more than you think So please, I ask, just hold on For me 
garden away for days What have you been doing while I'm away? Please tell me You're taking care of yourself to understand If you're not here with me I can't live like this Not anymore So please I ask Just hold on So Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence on Unforgiving 60 and we want your insights and feedback. And indeed, if you know someone who has great insights to share with us that have a practical difference, then get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's unforgiving60.com. We love speaking to anyone who's been walking on the path less travelled and is generally living the life less ordinary. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search at Unforgiving60. That's Unforgiving60. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. You know what to do. See you next episode on the Unforgiving 60.